Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Well, as Libby mentioned, this morning we finish our teaching series looking at different gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're looking at the gift of faith. And we're also looking at faith in general. And uh, I don't know who had a hand in it, but uh, whoever designed the England game to kick off at one o'clock meant that I'm going to preach a slightly shorter sermon today uh, than maybe is usual. You mean whoop? Who whooped at the back there? That's one of our interns whose presence will be taken off them at the end of the service. Um, But over the last uh, 10, 20 years or so, two things have been set in direct opposition to each other. We're told by a lot of our society, lots of our culture, lots of our media, that these two things stand distinct from one another and in opposition to each other. On the one hand, we're told we have faith. And however faith appears, faith is regarded generally to be a good thing, but it's regarded to be a historic thing, But also, we're told, it's blind, it's emotional, and it's irrational. And opposed to faith, we're told, we have reason. And reason stands opposed to faith. Reason is solid, factual, evidence-based, scientific, and true. Faith is true for you in whatever way you think it's true. If it's true for you, it's true, even though that statement is completely illogical. But reason is very different. Reason is factual. Reason really is true. Reason is objective. Faith is subjective. 
People like the so-called new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris and others, have perpetuated this idea. Listen to the words of one guy, Keith Lockett, who's a prominent atheist in the United States. He says this, There is an essential difference between reason and faith. In reason, one accepts only conclusions one can prove to be true. Conclusions based on sensory evidence and logical inference from such evidence. Faith, on the other hand, is belief unsupported by facts or logic. The blind embrace of ideas despite an absence of evidence or proof. And you see again, very clearly, these two things set against each other. Faith on the one hand, reason on the other. And if we're honest, as I've thought about it over the past week or so, I think as Christians, we have contributed to this idea. Uh, two or three weeks ago, Gemma was preaching at our 7 o'clock service on the subject of faith and preached in a really helpful way. And right at the start, she asked us to turn and share with each other a helpful picture or metaphor for faith. And I'm sitting on the front row down here next to Josh Gilbert, actually somebody who I think has the spiritual gift of faith, and we'll come on to that later. But I turned to Josh, Josh turned to me, and we both came up with the same illustration. Our minds went liturgically, theologically, and ecclesiastically to Indiana Jones. <laughs> Our minds immediately went to the third film, where he comes out towards the end, as they're going towards uh, the Holy Grail, he's left his, his father, Sean Connery, bleeding in the foyer next to that medieval knight, and now he's coming through, he's got a piece of parchment, and he's told that he has just to step out in faith. And he comes out and he sees this chasm ahead of him. And he doesn't know what to do, because there seemingly is no way across. And it's a, it's a, a visual device, because you can't actually see. If we go back to the previous picture, you can't actually see the bridge until he walks across it. And he hears the words of his dad saying, Indy, Indy, just walk... Well, in fact, it's Sean Connery, so it's, Indy, Indy, just walk across. <laughs> and eventually he steps out, and puts his foot down. And it's a step of blind faith as he puts his foot out and to his relief feels the stone underneath his boot as he steps out in blind faith. And I found that picture helpful for years, ever since I watched that film. And Josh has found that helpful for many years, less than me, because he's a bit younger. But it hit me this week that actually it's not a picture of biblical faith. Biblical faith, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is never blind faith. What you and I are called to believe in is not blind faith. In the Old and New Testament, God rarely asks people to step into the unknown. Faith is always based on promises. Faith is always based, above all, on a person, the person of God himself, 
And faith is always based essentially on the character and person of God as revealed in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that the writer to the Hebrews writes this in chapter 11, that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That is true. But biblical faith is not blind in the sense that we don't know who or what we are putting our faith in. So when Matthew and Nicola made those statements of faith, they were putting their faith on behalf of Charlotte, who obviously has got the gift of wisdom, because when she saw Uncle Craig repenting of his sins, <laughs> Charlotte just looked at Craig, which was in a way sort of, yeah, you've got a lot to confess. <laughs> very wise at a very young age. They're not putting blind faith into operation. They're putting their faith in the God who has revealed himself in history, who has revealed himself through scripture, who has revealed himself above all in the person of Jesus Christ, and who has revealed himself in their lives. They're making their statements of faith based on what they have known and experienced of God in their lives thus far. So it's not actually blind faith that we're caused or called to put our faith in. John Stott puts it this way in his book on Romans. He says, faith goes beyond reason, but always has a rational basis. Faith is believing or trusting a person, and its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. And that's true. If you think about trust at a human level, it depends in whom you are putting your trust. So if I was to do the trust exercise, if I was to stand with my back to you and just throw myself backwards, I could ask two or three to come and catch me. So I might ask Libby, and I might ask uh, Fiona, and I, I might ask Catherine, and they might come and, and they might catch me or not, as the case may be. Probably Libby wouldn't catch me because she's my clergy colleague and I don't trust her. Um, <laughs> but I might ask some other people, so I might ask Duncan Hughes and I might ask Mike Dixon and Neil Kempsell and they would come and they, they would catch me because they're all over six foot blokes and they would be able to catch me and I would trust them to catch me in a way that I wouldn't trust Libby, and not because of physical strength, I'm not making that gender comment, just <laughs> dangerous territory, I know, I know, dangerous territory. You can try it. <laughs> not now, <laughs> definitely not now. But you see, you trust people depending on what you know of them. And it's the same with faith. Faith is based on the character of who God is what he has done, and how we have experienced him. We see it in the book of Romans. Abraham in chapter 4, that passage that Mike read for us a few moments ago, is portrayed here as one of the great examples of faith. And deliberately, what the Apostle Paul is doing, who's coming from a Jewish background, writing to a Jewish church in Rome, drawing on his Jewish past, 
to help this church see that the Christian faith isn't the opposite of what they've known up to now, but it's the fulfilment of what they've known up to now. That the Christian faith isn't some sort of sect or deviation from Judaism, but is actually the continuation and the fulfilment of what they've known thus far. And he refers to Abraham three times in chapter 4 as our forefather, the father of us all, and our father. He's using the great hero of Judaism to make his point about faith. He's saying that justification by faith isn't some new doctrine or belief or idea that the church has dreamt up or even that the the Reformation dreamt or rediscovered in, in, in the 16th, 17th century, but actually it's been there right from the beginning in the way that God interacts with people. And in using Abraham, what the Apostle Paul is doing, it's a bit like writing um, about Scottish history and using Robert the Bruce as an example, or, or writing about the Second World War and using Sir Winston Churchill as an example. He's holding up an example of, of somebody that everybody within the Jewish faith held up as a hero. And he's saying, look, this dynamic was at work in the life of Abraham. And he refers four times to when Abraham trusted God. So firstly, he refers back to God's call to Abram to leave his home in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 to 9, where Abram, living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, was called by God to leave his home, leave his people with the promise of posterity and prosperity, and that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham obeys and leaves his home, leaves his people, based on what he's known of God so far. Secondly, God's promises become more specific. God shows him Canaan, a specific place where the people are going to be given the land, and two beautiful pictures are painted of Abram's descendants, being as numerous as the dust of the earth, and as many as the stars in the sky. And again, Abram responds in faith, obeys, and steps out in faith, based on what he's known of God so far. Thirdly, when Abram is 99 and Sarai is 90, God promises them a son and changes their names to Abraham and Sarah to show their faith. But look what happens here. Something happens when Abram is told that he is going to have a son, even though he's 99 and his wife is 90, Abram does not respond with faith-filled obedience. He falls flat on his face and roars his head off with laughter. If he was Scottish, he would have said, I write. You know, we're the only nation that can have two positives to make a negative. (laughs) And Abram would have said that. You must be joking. I'm 99, my wife is 90, there is no chance of being given a son. Abram is held up as a hero of faith. Yet when God promises him something, something that seems impossible, something that seems out of his reach, Abram kills himself with laughter. Do you see that Doubt is involved in faith. 
Some people will set those two things against each other, even within the Christian faith. They're not. Doubt will always be part of faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And that's something very different. Unbelief is a refusal to believe. Doubt is just part of being human. Doubt is part of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. 100% certainty very quickly starts to resemble arrogance. One of my favourite, in fact, my favourite quote from a theologian, perhaps the only one that I really understand, is from a guy called Michael Polanyi. And he wrote some amazing books that I really did not understand when I was training to be a vicar. But there was one quote that stuck in my mind, and it has ever since. It was this, Lord, help me to know those things about you that I know to be true, while admitting at the same time that I might be wrong. God, help me to know those things about you that I know to be true while admitting at the same time that I might be wrong. Because once you start to be around people who are 100% certain that what they believe is true and what they believe is absolutely accurate and what they believe is the only way of thinking about a particular subject, you cross over into arrogance and whether it's Christian, whether it's be charismatic, reformed, liberal or Catholic, or whether it's Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism, you end up with extremism, justifying certain actions and responses because what I believe is the truth. Now, I believe that Christianity is true. I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. But what I know of God, what I know of Jesus, is only part of the truth. Any creedal expression that we ask Matthew and Nicola and Craig and Ali to say, that's only, it's limited by our understanding of human language. It's limited by our understanding of God. Any doctrine, any belief, important though they are, will only give us a window into part of who God is. It will not give us the full picture because this side of eternity, you and I will never understand God because he will always be bigger than our understanding because that's what makes him God and us not God. And that's very good news. Because God is always bigger than we make him out to be. God is always bigger than our doctrinal statements. God is always bigger than how we conceive God to be. As I say, whether that be charismatic, reformed, Catholic, liberal, and there's a whole stream of illiberal liberalism that says you're only allowed to believe what they believe as long as you don't disagree with what they believe. We have a picture, part of the truth, and the rest of it is faith. 
Unbelief is the opposite of faith, not doubt. And then the fourth example that Paul uses is where God tests Abraham right to the very extreme. Where against all expectation, Abram's wife Sarai does give birth to a son. And then a few years later, God tells Abraham to take this son Isaac and go and sacrifice him. And God tests Abraham and Abraham still is fully persuaded that God has power to do what he has promised. So he takes Isaac for a walk into the wilderness and even when his son Isaac turns to him and says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abram's reply is, God will provide. Brackets, it's you, son. (laughs) Even then... Abraham still trusts God. And Paul tells us, as it tells us in Genesis, that it was credited to him as righteousness. Because he is fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Four times in the book of Hebrews, Abraham is described as taking action by faith. And he obeys God because he trusts God. And he trusts God because of what God has promised. And because of what God has promised and the God that he knows, he then responds by faith. It is not a step of blind faith. Sometimes on the Alpha course, as we're coming towards the end of the course, people start to ask some of the really big questions. And sometimes they start to, to say things like, well, well, do I have to have everything sorted and sussed in order to become a Christian? And it's one of the jobs of the Alpha team to say, no, it's not. You don't have to have everything sorted and sussed. Come on a Sunday. Look around. You will see people who haven't got everything sorted and sussed. It's called the church. And we come with our doubts, and we come with our faith, and some of us come with our unbelief as well. And God is able to take us exactly where we are. So faith is trusting God based on who he is, his character, based on his promises, and based on what we know of him so far, and how he has proved himself in scripture, in history, and in our own experience. So if that's what faith is, what isn't faith? Very quickly. Faith is not a constant state of being in a religious high. So some people think they have to stay in this sort of state of believing. So it might be how you feel when you receive the bread and the wine at communion and you feel close to God. It may be what you feel in the middle of a worship song and you feel sort of caught up into heaven and you think, that's amazing. I've got to keep hold of this feeling all week. That's faith. Or it might be when you're prayed for by a member of, of your connect group or the prayer ministry team. Somebody prays for you and you feel empowered and, and lifted up and you think, I've got to keep hold of this feeling. That's not what biblical faith is. I hope you heard what Sarah said. That's perhaps the most important thing that she's learned in this year of being on the staff. Learning to trust God even when she does not feel 
his presence. That is one of the most profound and maturing ways in which any of us can learn about God and learn about ourselves when he withdraws his presence. And God does it from time to time. And it's a test for us to say, do you love me? Do you trust me? Are you still willing to follow me? So faith is not a constant state of a religious high. It's not emotional, although it will involve our emotions. Faith is not a lack of doubt, as we've looked at. Doubt is part of being human. Doubt is a reality. Jesus doubted. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus doubted. If there is any other way, Lord, let this cup pass from my lips. Jesus doubted because even though he was God become a a human being, he was 100% divine, he was also 100% human. And it's human to doubt. Jesus doubted. So if Jesus doubted, then you and I can. It's allowed. We're given permission to. It's okay. Remember, arrogant certainty is not faith and is not very attractive. And neither is faith, as I've said, an intellectual assent to a set of beliefs or doctrine. Faith is always dynamic, active, and above all, faith is personal. In the Gospel of John, the the word faith is always a verb. It's never a noun. It's always a doing word. You've got to exercise faith. You've got to put it into action. So it's no point me saying that I I believe that that Libby and Catherine and Elise would catch me if I was exercising faith in that particular area I would ask them to do it and the fact that I've not asked them to do it shows that I haven't got enough faith but faith is action it's never just mental assent it's never just what we believe up here. It always has to be lived out and always has to be put into action. But again, it's based on the character of God himself. And just to recap, faith, Christian faith, is not blind. It's not based on who God is and what it is based on who God is and what he has done. And we're asked to put our faith in the person of Jesus, not a set of beliefs. We were not left a doctrinal creed to believe in. We were left with a person to have a relationship with. And that's very different. So that's faith, Christian faith. And then there's this thing called the spiritual gift of faith. Quite often in the the lists of of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians, there's this Uh, reference to, if I have the gift of faith. Well, what is the gift of faith if we all have faith? Well, it's a bit like saying we're all called to be witnesses, but some people have the gift of evangelism. So we all have faith to be Christians, but then some people have the gift of faith. What is the gift of faith? The network course that's just finished defines it like this. It says it's the divine enablement to act on God's promises with confidence and unwavering belief in God's ability to fulfil his purposes. 
So perhaps you can think of people, either in your connect group, or in this church, or maybe in another church, and just to be around them, and to be in their company, and maybe perhaps from time to time to ask them to pray for you, you're left feeling better, more encouraged, more refreshed, more renewed, more faith-filled than you were before you met them. It's likely that that person has the gift of faith. We hope that members of our prayer ministry team have the gift of faith. That, un, that confidence and unwavering belief in God's ability to fulfill his purposes. When you're around somebody who has the gift of faith, everything just seems lighter, everything just seems easier, and you're up for even things that previously seemed really, really difficult. Josh Gilbert would be a case in point. To be around Josh is to be around this sort of bundle of ginger energy and faith. Because he's just full of faith in what God will do. Libby and I spend most of our time before Josh preaches saying, down, tiger. Because he said, we could do this, we could do this, do this. Because he's God, he's getting bigger and bigger. And if you spend time with, he's the perfect person to lead Alpha because when you, you spend time with Josh, you have a bigger appreciation of who God is. That's what somebody with a gift of faith does. And I've been so encouraged, so blessed by people in this church and other churches that I've been a part of to be around people who've got the gift of faith because it increases my faith. I remember somebody with a gift of faith writing a letter to me when unbeknownst to them, completely unbeknownst to them, I'd been turned down quite rightly for the Baptist ministry. The Baptists were much more sensible than the Church of England and they turned me down quite rightly. And I was just gutted. I was distraught. I was so distraught. Some of you know this, but I sat on the train from London to Manchester for however long it was, two hours, and just across the aisle in the seat opposite me was Sir Bobby Charlton. I didn't know until we hit Manchester, until we stood up and I looked across and there was Sir Bobby I'm a Manchester United fan, you might have picked that up. There was Sir Bobby Charlton a foot away from me, and I could have spent the entire train journey from London to Manchester talking to Sir Bobby Charlton. But I was gutted that I wasn't going to be a Baptist minister. Distraught. And then three days later, somebody wrote a letter to me, and on, on the envelope, on the outside, they simply wrote these words from Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And it was as though God just spoke to me through that Bible verse written on the back of the envelope saying, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to still follow me, even though you don't know where it's going to lead? Are you still willing to put your faith in me? Think of other people who've prayed for me and with me down the years, and they've lifted me up, they've encouraged me. Remember a member of this church when we were one of some of the early discussions about whether we could do this building project? We haven't got a clue 
how much it was going to cost. And if we'd known how much it was going to cost, we would never have done it. But I remember a, a member of this church just saying, I think this is of God. I think we can do it. I think we can do it. Let's pray. We need to pray. I think, this, I think we can do it. It's of God. Let's go for it. And they prayed. And by the end of the time that they prayed, I was thinking, I think we can do it. <laughs> because they've got the gift of faith. And maybe you can encourage somebody. Maybe you have the gift of faith. You need to use that gift of faith. Now, the flip side for people with the gift of faith is that they need to be careful. Never to bully and never to force other people. Because the danger is that people with the gift of faith ask other people to step out on their faith. If God gives you faith, you are to step out for your faith. Don't step out on other people's faith or ask them to step out on yours. And sometimes people with the gift of faith do need that down, tiger. Let's be a bit more realistic. But the danger of the down, tiger approach is that we limit God. And we downplay what God could do. And people with a gift of faith always need to express it with love. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and in angels, but have not love, and even if I have the faith to move mountains, but have not love, if you've got the gift of faith, but use it without love, it very quickly crosses over into bullying and spiritual bullying. And that's not good. But if you know somebody with a gift of faith, get them to pray with you. Get them to pray for you. And if you've got the gift of faith, are you using it to help the faith of the people around you? All of us have faith, but some of us have the gift of faith. All of us have gifts, and we need to use those gifts to encourage and build the church up so that all of us become the people that God wants us to become.